morning again, and uh, let me just say this, church, thank y'all. Um, we appreciate I, the, the, the basket. I haven't even a chance to go through that, but we're looking forward to doing that. And I and, uh, just want to say thank you. you, you that's, a, that's a wonderful expression of, of, of appreciation or whatever. And uh, I'm going to tell y'all, I appreciate just the opportunity of being your pastor. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a very humbling thing that I, I didn't know if God would ever call me. I didn't know if this would be ever what I would do. And yet, when God called me to it, and, and, and He sent me to this place, uh, I'm very, very thankful to be here and to be be your pastor. So, thank you for allowing me to do that, and, and our family, and the way you've you've loved us and and uh, served alongside us here in ministry. We're just humbled by that. So, I thank you. Um, I, we've been we've been doing this series of, of why we ask questions oftentimes of God when things don't go our way. When God doesn't do something that maybe is different than we would expect, we, we often go to that fallback question of why. God, why did you let that happen? Why did you let that happen to me? Why, why didn't you bring something else to Why wasn't this the case? And we, that's the wrong question to ask. But it got me to thinking, is, does God ever ask us why? And as we've spent several weeks looking at that, we see there are often times where God asks us why. And we've got one more of those that we're going to look at this morning, one more in this series of when God asks us why. And uh, I, this may be the last in the series. We may come back to it later on, but I know next week the Lord's leading me in a different direction. And, um, and then so in the coming weeks as we'll head into Thanksgiving and Christmas, our messages will tailor more towards that. Uh, this time of year. So we'll see what happens. But this morning, we're going to look at this topic of why have you conceived this thing in your heart? That's going to be our title. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But I know y'all want to see the pictures, right? I've gotten, I've gotten, you've gotten where you like those pictures. So I'm about out of them. So it's about time to wrap up the series. It's the problem. So, all right, I'm going to show you this now real quick. When it comes up, when this picture comes up, tell me what you see. Yep. All right, move back. So you see a frog. How many of you see the frog? You see the frog? All right, let's go to it and then go to the next picture. Yeah, now you see it. So if you, is that the second picture? There, then you see it a little better. First time I saw that, I went, yeah, that's a bull. Wait, what? So, yeah, it's all about perspective, and that's kind of what these, this series has been. You know, when we ask God why... Uh, we, we often are coming at it as, as scriptures we've looked at. We, we come at things from a secular standpoint. We come at it from a worldly standpoint. We come at it from a carnal standpoint. We don't come at it from God's perspective. And what we have to do is learn to see these things from God's perspective. And so when we, when we do that, when we, when we can see it from his perspective, and, and everything becomes clear. And then we're not confused about, well, why? Well, we don't have to ask why because we understand why. And we don't always have to know why, amen? We, we learn to trust God is the biggest thing in this. But so here's the title again. Why have, have you conceived this thing in your heart? So I'm going to ask you to turn to Acts chapter 5. We're going to be in the, really we'll be there all morning. We don't have an outline. You can write down some verses. And if there's anything I hit that you don't catch, get me afterwards. And we'll catch you up on, on references or things like that. But we're going to look at Acts chapter 5, the first 11 verses primarily this morning. So as we get there, I want you to get the picture of what's going on when we come to Acts chapter 5. What, what, what we see going on is the church is growing. The Pentecost has come. The, church, the Holy Spirit has come. The church is growing leaps and bounds. Thousands of people have gotten saved. Literally thousands have gotten saved. They've gotten baptized. They've joined the church and, and they're being added to the church. And, then, and so with that, when you see that kind of growth, persecution has started. So persecution has started. Look, here's what happens. Satan is attacking from the outside of the church, and he's trying to stop this great work of God. So he's brought persecution. You go back and read chapter 4, and you see the persecution that is going on there. And, and so that's what's going on in chapter 4. But as you come to the close of chapter 4, what we see again is we see that there's growth in the church. We see there's unity in the church. And we see something really amazing going on. There's generosity that is abounding in the church. And what we have are members that are selling off those who had homes and properties. It says they were, they were selling those properties and then they were bringing the proceeds from that sale and they were laying those at the feet of Peter, at their, the, the, the feet of the leaders of the church. They were presenting them there and then the, the, the church leadership was taking those offerings, those gifts that were being given and they were distributing to all as there was need. Now, I, I would say when we look at that, it's kind of what we do with our benevolence offering. You give uh, above and beyond 
beyond your tithe. We give when we, we, we do that benevolence, benevolence offering several times during the year, usually when we take communion, and we'll offer that, and then that money is used to put in our benevolence fund, is used to meet needs within the body or even needs outside the body, but it's used to meet those needs. So we see this is going on in the church. And again, great things are going on in the church. And, and while Satan is bringing attacks from outside, it ain't hindering the work. So we come to Acts chapter 5, verse 1, and, and it says, but. Now, when you see but... Even in our conversation, it generally means there's a change in the story. And that's what this means. When you see it in Scripture, it generally is marking a decisive change in the story. So we see all these wonderful things going on there at the end of chapter 4. And we get to the beginning there of chapter 5, and it says, But a certain man named Ananias. So this isn't a parable. This isn't a made-up story. This is a real man, Ananias with Sapphira, his wife. So Ananias and Sapphira, I would venture to guess 95% of you know those names and you know the story. So Ananias, but everything, all this generosity, all these wonderful things are going on, but means something's fixing to change. Ananias, this certain man, Ananias and Sapphira, his wife, it says they sold a possession. Verse two, and he kept back part of the proceeds. His wife also being aware of it and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. He dropped dead right there. Verse 5. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. Uh, the, the original language, English doesn't convey it real well, but they were together in this sin and the Bible, really, the, the, the literal translation is it buried them face to face. Not really beside each other, but buried them face to face. They were, they, were, they were facing each other. And as they had conspired together, they were facing each other in the burial. Verse 11, so great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. Now, first thing I want to say is this. This is not church discipline. Now, church, you know, people, people would read that and go, oh, that's church discipline. And people would read that and go, oh, Peter was harsh. Peter, Peter made such a, Jesus never made that kind of a judgment. Jesus was always very forgiving and Peter was very unforgiving here. This is not church discipline. I want you to understand this. It's very important. Now, church discipline is very important. It's something that needs to be done. It needs to be done more often. It needs to be done more consistently. And it's something that most churches in America today don't even, don't even concern themselves with it at all to the detriment of the body of Christ. Church discipline is important. But this here is not church discipline. Um, God is the one who judged right here. Peter did not judge. Peter did not condemn. He simply called out Ananias in his sin and God pronounced judgment and struck Ananias dead right here. So make it very clear as you, as you understand this. This is, we're seeing what God did and how God responded to this sin of Ananias and Sapphira. This is not Peter's judgment. It's not the church's judgment. And so I want you to understand that. Now, there should have been church discipline. But God judged this in a different way, and he dealt with the situation. And you got to understand, the very start of this, there is sin creeping in, and we're going to talk about that sin. Satan's attacking outside, now he's attacking inside. So let's look at who they were, a little bit about who they were. We don't know a whole lot, but we know Sapphira, the name Sapphira is an Aramaic name that means beautiful. It's a beautiful name. I like Sapphira. That's a cool name, but it means beautiful. Ananias is a Hebrew name. In the Hebrew, it means God is gracious. And what we're going to see as we continue in this, in this message this morning is that neither of them really lived up to their names. What they did wasn't beautiful and it wasn't gracious. 
And, 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 and so we're going to see that. So the, then the question comes up was, were Ananias and Sapphira believers? Well, most would say yes. As I studied this week, most commentaries, most pastors I look at say that these were believers. They were within the church. They were involved in the church. But I'm going to say this. I don't think we can be sure. I don't think we can be conclusive in there. And the fact is, just because you're in the church, just because you may be a member of the church, doesn't mean you're a member of the body of Christ. It doesn't mean just because you've joined a church that you are genuinely born again and a follower of Christ. So I don't think we can conclusively draw that. And I don't think the, the, the judgment of God changes uh, whether they were believers or unbelievers in what he was doing. And we'll get more to that. So what was it that they did? Well, they sold a piece of property. Why did they sell the piece of property? Well, again... There's a lot of speculation about why they sold the property. Perhaps, you know, they were genuinely moved and inspired by Barnabas. And y'all know Barnabas. And Barnabas had sold this piece of property. You, you know, Barnabas, son of encouragement. He was an encourager. When you, when you think of Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas, and they went and they did mission trips together. He was an encourager. Everywhere you find Barnabas, he's helping people. He's picking somebody up. He's carrying somebody along. He's helping them grow in their, in their relationship with the Lord. And Barnabas was an encourager. And so they, they, in the end of chapter... Chapter 4, we see where Barnabas sold a piece of property. He brought the proceeds and he gave them to Peter to the church. Now, you have to imagine, as you, as you know what I do, I read in color, okay? So I try to see what's going on because we don't get the whole picture. We get what God wants us to see. But there's, there's, uh, there's nothing wrong with using our divine, this uh, sanctified imagination and understanding because these are people, folks, just like we are. How are they acting? They're acting like we would act. They're doing what we would do. And so you understand the situation. And so what would people have done? Understand then, Peter may have sat somewhere, and when the offerings came in, they didn't go put them in a box over around here. They didn't pass a plate in the congregation. When they gave their offerings, they came forward and they presented their offerings at the feet of Peter there in the church. So it was no secret. So when, Anna, when, when Barnabas brought his offering, whatever it was, it was no secret. He didn't do it to be seen. He didn't do it to get recognition and pats on the back and, oh, man, you're awesome, you're great, you're this. But without a doubt, there would have been those who gave attention to that, would have, would have given recognition to that. They would have praised the gift and praised God for the gift. And, you know, you can praise God for the gift. You can praise God for using Barnabas in that. And others can see that as, boy, Barnabas got a lot of attention there. That was, you know... Maybe, maybe they saw what Barnabas did and they were inspired by that. Have you ever been inspired by, by something someone does? You see somebody do a good work, you see them do a good deed, and you were inspired by that. You go, man, I want to do something like that. Maybe they were genuinely inspired and that's why they decided we've got this piece of property, we'll sell the property and we'll give it to the church. That may have been what happened. But it could very well be, and, and the fact is most commentators tend to be a little more pessimistic on it. They tend to believe that, that Ananias and Sapphira from the start desired the recognition. They desired the, 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 the accolades, the pats on the back, the spotlight, the attention for the gift that they were going to bring. And so this is what they did. They sold a property. However they got there, however it was they decided that's what they were going to do, they sold the property. But here's what happened next. They kept back part. So if they, whatever they sold the property for, they didn't bring the full price that the property was sold for and make that an offering. They held back part of that. Now, they kept back part of the proceeds. That phrase there, kept back, it means this, to embezzle or pilfer. Now, now, we would think, well, they held back. So, you know, there's a lot of ways we can rationalize it, and there's a lot of ways we can look at that, and there was nothing wrong with it. And we're going to hopefully understand what was wrong and what they did as we go through this. But the Scripture makes it very clear that when they held back part of that, they were, there was an embezzling attitude. There was a pilfering to this. They were keeping something back that maybe they shouldn't have. Um, so why, why is that? Why did they hold it back? Well, you, you generally got to look at that. If you're going to hold back money, generally it's going to be about greed. Bottom line is it's, it's greed. It's, it's a love for money. Well, we decide we want to sell this property and we're going to give it to the church. Well, we've got the church. We got it, we got it sold now. We got the money in hand. All of a sudden I'm going, hmm, I don't think I can give all that. 
I'm not, I can't give all that. So there's a greed here. There's the love for money. And it's amazing how money, how often that money and the love for money has created problems. First Timothy 16 says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Now, understand that that doesn't say that, that the love of money is the root of all evil. It says it's the root of all kinds of evil. So, so it's a root. It's, there's a lot of other roots, but the love of money is a root that will get you in trouble, man. If you got a love for money, it's going to open up a, a, a lot of different problems. It's a root, a root of all kinds of evil. You watch movies and, and inevitably they're stealing or they're embezzling or they're, they're hoarding or whatever it is. And the problems that come about in most of your action-adventure movies has to do with the greed and the love for money. They want to pursue money. So here's, here's it is. The, the love for money has messed up a lot of things. You know, it inspired Simon Magus to, to make his wicked proposal to Peter in Acts chapter 8. You should go read Acts chapter 8. Read that story. About the greed there, the love for money. It, it motivated Elymas, the sorcerer in Acts 13. It led to the persecution of the missionaries at Philippi and again at Ephesus. When they were persecuted because as they went in and preached the gospel and people were getting saved, it hurt, it hurt those who were selling idols. It hurt those who were in the sin trades, the, making money off of sinful vices. And when, the, and when that hurt, when the pocketbook got hurt, now all of a sudden they got a problem and they persecuted the missionaries because of it. It was the love of money that gripped the soul of Felix. And it was the love of money that ruined the church at Laodicea. It was the love of money that turned Judas into a traitor, turned Gehazi into a leper, and Achan into a, a deadly hindrance to Israel. All of these, all of this was, was the love of money. It was that greed. Now, verse 3 again. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? Satan put it in his head, but Ananias is the one who worked it all out. Okay? Satan is, is now attacking the church from within. He's found a weak link in the church in Ananias and Sapphira, and he's brought this into their... He's filled your heart. He's brought temptation into their mind. Here's the thing. Satan knows our weaknesses. If he doesn't know your weakness, he's going to find out your weakness. And it won't be hard. All he'll do is observe. He'll watch. He'll see where you struggle. He'll see where you have a problem, something where you can be tempted. And so he's, he'll either know your temptation or he'll learn it. And then he'll do all he can to get your eyes off of God and onto anything else. But more specifically, onto that thing that you're easily tempted with. Your area of weakness, he'll find that, he'll exploit that. And here in this situation, maybe he, he, he whispered this, you, you know, Ananias, you deserve that kind of attention. You know, Barnabas is getting that, you deserve that kind of attention. Or, you know, you can't afford to give all of that. Or, you know, one, no one will ever know. They'll think that you gave it all and they'll think you're great. Barnabas, uh, Ananias. Or, or, look, Ananias, that's your money. That's your money. You deserve it. You deserve it. You deserve to keep that, and you deserve to enjoy it, Ananias. Whatever it was, it was enough to get Ananias moving in the wrong direction. So we don't know whether he was heading in the right direction. I'm going to sell this property and give it to the work of the Lord, and then Satan brings a temptation to his heart. Or from the very start, hmm, man. You know what? We got a piece of property. We could sell that property. We could sell it, and then we could take part of the money and give it. And everybody think we gave everything, and it'd be man. They'll just think, oh yeah, we can get all that attention. Wouldn't that be good? We don't know exactly how it goes, but that's that's the gist of where we're at. That's where he is at at this moment. Now, we must be absolutely clear as to what Ananias' sin was, okay? Their sin was not in taking money from God, but in pretending to be something that they were not. Ananias and Sapphira wanted to gain the reputation for being more spiritual than they actually were. You know, when, those, when the others brought their donations, these two may have very well been jealous and wanted that recognition as well. This is not a casual deception that we see here. It's not a casual deception, not at all. They pretended to have a deeper spiritual commitment than they truly had. Now, as I'm preparing this, I got very uncomfortable. And I would hope that at this point in the message, some of you are starting to get uncomfortable. Keep in mind that the sins, uh, that their sin was not stealing money from God, because if you look at verse 4, says, while it remained, this is Peter talking here to Ananias. He says, while it remained, 
Was it not your own? Hey, when you had the land, before you sold the land, it was yours. Nobody was making you do anything with it. No one compelled you to do anything with it. It was yours. And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? You sold the property. You have the money. It's your money. You decide what you do with the money. It's in your control. And Peter says there, why have you conceived this thing in your heart? They were under no commitment to sell the property. They had not made a public commitment as far as we can tell. They didn't go and say, hey, church, we're going to sell a piece of land over there and everything we get from it, we're going to come and give it to the church. There was nothing made. There was no contract drawn up. They were not being compelled to sell the property and give anything. He did not have to sell the property, and once it was sold, he was under no obligation to give the money to the Lord's work. We've got to understand that. It's his money. God hasn't demanded. We don't read anything in there where God has demanded anything of him or asked anything of him. This is all Ananias' doings. He and Sapphira have conspired all of this. He was free to keep it all. He was free to give some of it, and he was free to give it all. You know, and I, I thought about it as I was preparing this, to tell, when you go into court, well, used to, I don't know if we do anymore, but we put your hand on the Bible. I don't think they do that anymore. But you put your hand on the Bible and you raise your, you raise your right hand. I think it's your right hand. Put one on the Bible and raise your right hand. And you swear to what? Spell, tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So if we would live by that, they wouldn't be in this problem right here because here's the problem. We are to tell the truth. So when we tell the truth, and it, then it says the whole truth, that means you include everything in here and nothing but the truth. It means you don't add anything to it. You don't skew it a little bit so that it fits your situation. Folks, if we would live by that right there, we, it would help us a whole lot. But they didn't live by that. And so he didn't tell the truth. He didn't tell the whole truth as they bring this offering. And, and, and certainly it wasn't nothing but the truth. There was a whole lot of conspiring here and a whole lot of mischief going on. And it's all their own doing. Ananias and Sapphira. We know that God covets no man's money, so we know this isn't about money. God doesn't covet our money. You know, if it's not freely given out of a spirit of generosity and integrity, I'll just tell you this, God doesn't want it. And I'll tell you this for sure, He doesn't need it. Okay? So when we give, God wants us to freely give. He wants us to be cheerful givers, worshipful givers, and, and, not, and, not, and, 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 and if we're not doing it for those reasons, if for some other reason, he don't want it. And he certainly doesn't need it. So plain and simple, here's the deal. Their sin was hypocrisy. They were trying to appear more spiritual than they really were. And most of us, if, if not all of us, have some of Ananias in us. We have a desire to be thought better of or more holy or more spiritual than we really are. We want others, bottom line, we want others to see us in a better light than the reality. That's a, that's a desire that we all tend to have and struggle with. Now, I want you to understand this. It's no sin when others think you're more spiritual than you are. There's, there's men and women in this church I hold in super high regard. I may actually think they're more spiritual than they really are in reality. There's no sin for them in that. Here's where the sin comes in. We share in Ananias' sin when we try to make others think we are more spiritual than we are. There's where the hypocrisy comes in. So how does that look today? How, how, our, how, how does that look? What are some ways we do that? Well, we, by creating the impression that we are people of prayer when we're not. That's hypocrisy. And when we talk about prayer a lot and we don't pray. Or we tell someone we'll pray for them and we don't. You know, here, here, here's something I've shared before with you and I try to do this. Someone, someone will ask me to pray for them. And, and my first thing is, absolutely, I'll pray for you. And it, 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 we tend to want to move on. I'm, I'm trying to always stop. And if I can do it, to pray for them right then and right there. Because, number one, I don't want to make myself a liar and a hypocrite when I said I'll pray for you and I forget all about it as soon as I walk away. Not intentionally even, but I forget about it and I never lift that up in prayer. I'm being a hypocrite. 
Now, if, oh, well, that's an accident. But I said I would pray for you. So, but we can also make ourselves look better in that. Oh, man, what a prayer warrior he is. The only time he opens his mouth in prayer is in the pulpit, in the pew. Are we really people of prayer? We can be a hypocrite there. Um, making, making it look like we have it all together when we don't. That's hypocrisy. Now, I'm going to just tell y'all, folks, I'm a mess. I am. I'm a mess. If, if, you, if, if you just knew, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm a lot better mess than I was years ago. And years ago, before Gene and I were even, it might have been early in our marriage. It might have been early in our marriage. It might have been before we married. I'm not sure. My best friend, uh, I, I was real, I was a dumpster fire. And I've shared, I've shared with the congregation pretty openly about my past through the abuses and divorces and, and different things that were going on in my life. No different than many of you. I'm telling you, I was, I was a mess. I was an insecure, um, guilt-ridden, I was just a messed up young man. And, and I'm talking young man, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22. I was struggling. But here's the thing. You wouldn't know it from looking at me outside. If you looked at me, you'd go, man, he's got it all together. Put together a good front, had a great mask. And I didn't realize it until Alan Reynolds, still my best friend today. Um, Alan had a great impact on my life. But I remember one night we were sitting, a bunch of us were sitting at a restaurant eating and talking about some things. And I was actually sharing a little bit of my testimony. And I remember Alan kind of stopped and looked at me and he went, Man, I, I would have never guessed that. He said, to, to look at you from the outside, he said, you're the guy that's got it all together. Now, that shocked me. And it cut me to the heart. Because I didn't even realize what a fake I was being. What a, what a put on I was being. We want to be looked at better than what we really are. And I was putting forth a front. Like everything's amazing. I'm this great guy. I've got everything working in life. And the fact was I was a dumpster fire. That's hypocrisy. Promoting a perception of your generosity when in reality, you know, you're so tight you squeak when you walk. Hypocrisy. We had a, we had a couple that a couple years ago was, did we pay the building off the end of 19 or the end of 20? End of 19, right? End of 19. Wow, those two years have flown by. At the end of 2019, we had several people that gave big gifts. And not a one of them said, hey, hey, I got this gift. Hey. Not a one of them. Not a one of them. They, they didn't want anybody to know. It was very, and we had a, we had a man came. He, he called me. He said, hey, I need to talk to you for a minute. Are you at the office? I said, yeah. I just said, yeah. So he, he comes up to the office. He says, hey, man, I just want, I, you know, God's been good to us this year. He said, I just want to give a little something to the church. So he gives us a little something to the church. He gave us a check for $52,000. It would have been easy for him to come in the church that Sunday morning and go, Pastor, God's laid it on my heart. He's laid it on my heart. I'm feeling led of the Spirit because I'm so spiritual. I want to give it. And he could have proclaimed it. And we'd all went, wow, man, he must love the Lord. But he didn't want anybody to know. He said, I don't want anybody to know. The secret is being, I don't want. So we, we can promote this thing that we're very, very generous and we're really not. We can be misrepresenting our spiritual effectiveness or our experiences. You know what? That's hypocrisy. You know, I did this, or I did that, or I made that happen, or I led that, or I, 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 or me, me, me. A whole lot of that. We build ourselves up. We flaunt ourselves. We make ourselves look better than we really are. Um, or even, you know, when a, when a preacher urges the congregation toward deeper devotion to God, implying that his life is an example when he knows it's not, that's hypocrisy. When an evangelist calls people to holy living but is secretly having an affair with his secretary, that's hypocrisy. When we want people to, to see us as they want, they, as we want them to see us, not as we really are. 
It's hypocrisy. And that ought to give us a lot to think about this morning. Each one of us could spend some time thinking about areas in my life where that might be the case. Look what Jesus said about holy hypocrites. And Matthew, you don't have to turn that, but in Matthew 23, verses 5 through 7, he says, But all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. They love, listen, there's four things here. It says they love the best places uh, at feasts. They love the best places. They love the best seats in the synagogues. They love greetings in the marketplace. They love, hey there, spiritual giant. I mean, that's what they want. They love to be called by men, rabbi, rabbi, teacher, teacher. They love that. It's their heart to be recognized and seen as something that they really weren't. Luke 18, 11 says, The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this lowly tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. I want to be seen as he prays out and tells God how great he is. Hypocrisy. And the tax collector standing far off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It's interesting as we go back to the story here. Peter says Satan filled his heart to lie, but also says that Ananias conceived this deed in his own heart. Now, while Satan will fill our minds and hearts to sin, he cannot make us do anything. Let me say that again. So so those of you in the back can hear this. He can fill your heart. He can tempt you. He can put stuff in your mind, but he cannot make you do anything. See, see, uh, we can't ever say, as Flip Wilson used to say, the devil made me do it. We can't say that. Because the devil cannot and has not ever made you do anything. He, he cannot. See, de- Satan deceived, but it was Ananias who did the deed. He put it in his head, but Ananias is the one who then worked it out and conceived it and sinned, and that sin brought death. The same is true for us. See, Satan may tempt us, but we can't blame him when we sin. If he knows our weaknesses and we have them, it's not his fault. He's not the one who's going to answer for our sin when we fall into sin. James chapter 1, verse 14. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Look, it says each one is drawn is tempted. Each one is tempted. You're tempted to sin when you're drawn away by your own desires. It's what's already there. That's the temptation. That's your weakness. That's what Satan's looking for. And, and when our, by our own desires and enticed. So look, Satan, that's what he does. He's in the enticing business. So if you go fishing, you want to know what you're fishing for, right? When you, when you, when you go fishing, you want to know, if I'm wanting to catch this, if I'm wanting to catch a particular type of fish, I want to know what they like. I want to know what it is that they, they want to go after. Because I, you know, if they don't touch a worm, I don't want to put a worm on the hook. If they're not going to mess with a fake worm, I don't want to put fake worm on the hook. If they like cut up fish, if they like squid, whatever it is, if it's something, whatever it is they like, that's what I want to entice them with because what I'm doing is I'm tempting them with what they want already. That's what Satan does. He tempts us. And so he'll learn your desires and your weaknesses and then he's going to entice you. And then verse 15 there in James 1 says, Then when desire has conceived... It gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. That's what we have to guard against, folks. Satan knows the weaknesses. He'll put those things, he'll put things in your mind and in your heart to get you off track, but it is you that then you're drawn out. You're tempted. You conceive that idea, and then you act upon it, and it's sin. Sin brings forth death. Now, Peter had no knowledge of all of this. As you read this, Peter's sitting there as Ananias comes up and makes his offering. And I don't, I don't know how that was done. I don't know if, if Ananias proclaimed, Peter, we've sold a property and here's the proceeds. I don't know what he did. But we know that he lied to Peter. 
He lied to the church, but ultimately he lied to God. And what he did was here, you know, Peter had no knowledge of what was going on. When, when, when Ananias consummated the sin and he lied here to Peter and the church and to the Holy Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God then in turn supernaturally revealed, instantaneously revealed to Peter everything that was going on. And instantly, and we don't see this today. I, I'm, God can give this discernment to someone, but we don't see this going on all the time. But Peter was, it was a, you just have to understand the time it was and who Peter was and how God worked in Peter. And instantly Peter knew everything. He knew the moment they started to plan this. He knew when they first started to, decided to sell. He knew how much it was worth. He knew what they negotiated. He knew what it was signed for. He knew the amount of the check. He knew where they deposited the check. And he knew what they brought there. Everything was exposed to him right there. And Peter confronts Ananias with his sin. And again, his sin brought forth death. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last Three hours later, his wife, Sapphira, she, she continues the lie. She propagates this lie. Peter gave her the opportunity to confess. When he confronts her, he asked, did you sell the property for this amount? She could have easily said, you know what, my conscience won't let me do this. You know what, we lied about that. We didn't bring the whole amount. This was only a part of it. We, we kept back part of it, Peter. But he, she didn't. And God gave her the opportunity to come clean and to speak the truth. But she also lied to God and played the hypocrite. And God struck her dead too. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. Great fear came upon the church. And that's a good thing, folks. When there is righteous fear, when there's holy fear, um, we've, lost, we've lost the fear of God in our churches today. Amen? Amen. Uh, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I don't think I'm wrong. I think we've lost the fear of God in our churches. We've lost all of the Almighty. And it would do us all well to regain that righteous and holy view of God and to walk with a holy fear of Him. Folks, if we have a proper fear of God, it'll help us to stay faithful to God. And it'll help us when we face these temptations to, to appear to be more than what we are. All right. Now, I'm almost done, believe it or not. I've got five points. I'm going to move through these quick. Five takeaways for today from this message. Five takeaways. Number one, don't desire the recognition of men. That'll get us in trouble. We desire to be recognized of others. We desire to be seen as more than we are. Folks, just be real. Be who you are. God knows it all already. You certainly aren't tricking him. And even in this, it says you didn't lie to men, though he lied to men. You didn't lie to men. You lied to God. Folks, when we play the hypocrite, that's the only person we're lying to is God. But he knows the truth. He already knows. Galatians 1.10 says, For do we now persuade men or God, or do we seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant to Christ, of Christ. We should seek to please only God. Matthew 6, verses 1 through 8, you could read all of that. And just a couple of the verses here. It says, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. He didn't say, he didn't say uh, be careful not to do your charitable deeds before men, period. He said, to be seen of them. So it's all in the perception that um, someone else has. I want them to see it. I've given the illustration before. You know, you can have a great deed or you can have a sinful deed. I can be walking down the street. There's a homeless guy. I got some friends with me and I'm going along and I go, hmm, hmm. Hey, guys, I'll catch up with you in a minute, okay? I, I, I need to do something. And you go back and you say, I want to give this guy some money. Man, God loves you. Hope that'll help you. Praise the Lord, whatever. Pray with him. Whatever you do. You know what? That can be a great thing. But I can also go down the road and go, huh, I'm going to show Pastor Aaron what a spiritual guy I am. Watch it, watch it. Hey, 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 homeless guy. Man, you know what? The Lord loves you, and the Lord laid it on my heart to be a blessing to you today. So here, I'm going to bless you with this $20. No, it's really 5 but I want you to think it's 20 See the difference? Guy got money. But the difference is in what's going on in my heart. So don't desire to be recognized as men. Number two is don't love money. 
Rather, give generously and sincerely. Proverbs 15, 27 says, He who is greedy for gain troubles his own house. And we've already mentioned some, and they troubled their own house. And right here, Ananias and Sapphira, their house is troubled. They're both dead. The greed, that greed for gain. 1 Timothy 6, 10, again, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Now, I'm going to tell you this. The generosity of the people in this church is contagious. Amen? Amen? I mean, I'm, I'm blown away at times. When we had our, our missionaries here from Central Asia a few weeks ago, and we took a love offering, I don't know if I announced that, and I need to announce that. I think it was about $1,600 that we raised. $1,600 that you gave in a love offering to that family. Praise God. I've seen love offerings that were $300 in churches bigger than this. You're generous people. You've understood that. And, and it seems like we've discovered the truth of 2 Corinthians 9, 6, and 7. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. I think our church understands that. I don't think that's a, you know, I don't know if everybody here tithes, but I know what, we have a giving church. We have a faithful church. We have a generous church, and I praise the Lord for it. Acts 20, 35 says, and, and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. We need to be, we need to be generous with our money. Don't have a love for money. Don't want to hold on to it. Look, you ain't taking it with you. If you're going to heaven, you ain't taking it with you. And if you're going to hell, you ain't taking it with you either. Okay? So don't hold on to it. Don't have a love for money. Be generous. Number three, be filled with the Holy Spirit. The best way to avoid hypocrisy is to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Now, if you go back to Acts chapter 5, you look at verse 3. Uh, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Now, this word here, filled, it, it has the idea of filling a hollow place. So, Ananias, why has Satan filled? There was an empty spot there. There was an, an, a void there. Why has Satan filled your heart? To lie to the Holy Spirit. So, look, the best way to avoid being enticed, as we talked about, and tempted and swayed by Satan, is to make sure that you're saturated with the Holy Spirit of God. You need to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Look, if you're empty, Satan will try to fill that with, with unholy thoughts. When you're empty, when, you, when, you, when your battery's a little low, when you haven't been in the Word, when you haven't been, been, been spending time in prayer, you haven't had a quiet time, you're not fellowshipping with Him, you're not fellowshipping with other believers, your battery gets low, Satan's going to bring that temptation, and that's when you're vulnerable. Ephesians 5.18 is a command, not a suggestion. Be filled with the Spirit. We are to be filled with the Spirit. And the tense in that word there means that we are to keep on being filled. Not just a, it's not just a one-time fill-up. It's not, not I stick my charger on for a few minutes because my battery's getting low. No, it's you stick the charger on and you leave it on there. You're staying. You're constantly being charged. You might be pouring out the whole time. You might, be, you might be streaming on your device, but you're plugged in. You're being recharged. You're not creating that void. You're not having that hollow place. James 4, 7 says, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Folks, we just we need to be filled with the Spirit. Number four, knowing this, know this. When things are going well, Satan goes to work. That's what happens. When things are going well, you know an old preacher once said, where there's light, there will also be a shadow. Where God builds a church, the devil builds a chapel at its side. Now the apostle warned, uh, Paul warned, us, warned the church in, in Ephesus, and it's a warning that we need to heed in Acts 20, 29. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. The, the attacks are going to come. The attacks are going to come. Satan is going to go to work. And, and, and it's similar to what Jesus said in Matthew 13, 25. But, but while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. 
Now, these are warnings for us. And while, while there's a lot of harmony and there's a lot of excitement, a lot of great things happening in our church, we're, we're, we're excited about these things. We've seen people get saved. We've seen people baptized this year. We see our church growing in number. We have new, new folks that are visiting with us. Almost every Sunday, we have new people that are with us. Not everybody sticks. This isn't everybody's flavor. But we see folks that come and they visit and they come back. We see our numbers are growing. We're growing numerically. But I believe that we're growing spiritually. I believe what I see on Wednesday nights and in our Sunday small groups and our service here, we're growing deeper roots. We're putting those roots down. we got good things that are going on right here. But know this, Satan hates unity. He hates that our church has unity. He would, he's going to try to break that up. And we have to be on guard. In Ephesians 4, verse 1 through 3, it says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. With all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the spirit, uh, the, the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Folks, let's remain humble as a church. Let's be real. Let's just be real. Let's continue to grow and let's, let's endeavor to keep the unity, of the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And be careful because if there's not humility, 1 Corinthians 10, 12 gives us a warning. It says, therefore, let him who thinks he stand, uh, stands take heed lest he fall. Oh, I got it all together. I'm good. I'm good. All is well. Be careful when you think you've got it all together and you think you stand and everything's great because that's when we fall. That's when we fall. Number five, the last thing is this. Um, we need to encourage young people to live on mission. You say, that's a weird thing out of this message. Well, look what happened. In verse six, the young men arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. That's not an easy task. But it was the young men who rose up to do that task. Verse 10, then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead and carried her out, carrying her out, buried her by her husband. These young men in the church then got involved. They stepped up. Yep. Young people, don't wait till you're, you know, I, I got to be, be 14. You know, I was in a church. Um, I have to be careful. People see this. Uh, I was in a church where you couldn't sing in the choir till you were 15. Now, it it kind of drove me crazy, but it certainly drove our daughter crazy. Jordan was probably a better singer than most and she was more faithful than most, for sure. And, but she could not sing in the choir till she was 15. Um, there, there's, no, there's no age thing on serving. And these young people, I, I, see, I see some maturity in especially some of our young people that, man, they're, just, they're, they're walking with the Lord. They're, they're growing. Uh, 1 Timothy 4.12 says, Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit. Spirit in faith in purity. Our young people ought to step up and, and, and serve, grow, be involved. I'd like to call them something besides Gen Z or Gen X or millennials. How about, how about if we had a generation that we call, this is the Jesus generation. We call them Gen Jesus. Would, wouldn't that be great? Young people, step up. We want to encourage you. Be involved in the work of the Lord. As I close, uh, I'm going to go ahead and invite the worship team to come on up. As I close this morning, I want to say this, going back to the mask I was wearing, and, and you know what, if, if I'm being honest, there are times I wear masks now. There are times that things aren't what I present them to be. Maybe things aren't as good as I present them to be, or maybe I'm not doing as well as I present it. You know what, I wear masks still, and I, and I try to guard against that, and I think we all can, can wear masks and and probably all do at times. This morning, I, I just want to encourage us with a couple of things. You know, we, we can put a spin on our sin, and we'll ultimately spin out of control. We can spin it that it's no big deal. We can spin it that it's no big problem. We can spin it that it's all okay. We can spin it that, you know, it really, however you want to spin it, but you know what, we'll ultimately spin out of control. Or we can grow in our fear of God and become more faithful to the Lord. And this morning, we need to grow in our fear of God. We need to come back to that holy, righteous fear of the Lord and let Him speak to our, our hearts. 
You know, if we're going to be honest, we're all pretenders to some degree. And each of us struggle with trying to be something more than we really are. And, you know, we live out our hypocrisy. And, and often we sing it. There was, a, there was a pastor, Dr. Barnhouse, and on the basis of this text in Acts 5, he'd never let his congregation sing the third stanza of the hymn at Calvary. And y'all, many of you know that, that hymn at Calvary. The, third, the third, third stanza says, Now I have given to Jesus everything. Now I gladly own him as my king. He wouldn't let them sing it. And he said this. He said, you see, if God acted in the same way today as he did in the fifth chapter of Acts, you'd have to have a morgue in the basement of every church and a mortician on the pastoral staff. But folks, the reality is there wouldn't be a pastoral staff either. There wouldn't be a staff. So the truth is, you know, if there's judgment, if God's going to judge that sin, the fact is God has judged it. God has judged it. He's judged our hypocrisy. And uh, just like he did Ananias and Sapphira, um, he's judged it. And he judged someone when he, when, he, when he sent his son Jesus. And he laid our hypocrisy on his son who had never in any way, shape, form, thought, anything had ever sinned. He took all our sin, but he took that sin, this pretending, this fakeness, this hypocrisy. He took it, and he died for it. It's been paid for. And this morning, if you're in the house this morning, and you've never placed your faith and your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, folks, let me just tell you, the work has been done. You may say, preacher, what do I have to do this morning? There's nothing you can do. The work is done. Jesus has done everything that needed to be done. It is done. It's finished. As we talked about last week, he went and he sat down at the right hand of the Father because the work of salvation is done. And he did that for you. So so how how am I saved? When you hear the truth and the Holy Spirit of God tells you you're a sinner and you need to be born again, then you must respond to what God's doing. And when he's calling you to repentance and salvation, you have to respond to that. You have to come and confess your sin to God and receive what he's offering. If you're here this morning, you've never trusted Christ as your Savior. We're going to sing here in just a moment. And I'm not going to beg you. I'm going to stand down here. I'm not going to beg you. But if you need to know the Lord this morning, when, when that, the first note that he's hit, you should step out and come down here. And we'll take the Bible and we'll, we'll just walk you right through the gospel, the plan of salvation, and introduce you to the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. Christian, are you living a sincere life? Are you real? Is there, is there some pretense? Is there some hypocrisy? Is there something this morning that you just need to confess and get it right with God? I've been more concerned about what others think of me than what I really am. Maybe you want to come to the altar. Maybe you want to pray right where you're at. This is a good morning to get your heart right with the Lord. It's a good morning to confess whatever has been going on. And the fact is, there's probably not a one of us in this room that ought to leave here without talking to God this morning. Father...